0: Book Three, Chapter Six of The Mill on the Floss This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Book Three The Downfall. Chapter Six Tending to Refute the Popular Prejudice Against the Present of a Pocket Knife. In that dark time of December, the sale of the household furniture lasted beyond the middle of the second day. Mr. Tulliver, who had begun, in his intervals of consciousness, to manifest an irritability which often appeared to have as a direct effect the recurrence of spasmodic rigidity and insensibility, had lain in this living death throughout the critical hours when the noise of the sale came nearest to his chamber. Mr. Turnbull had decided that it would be a less risk to let him remain where he was than to remove him to Luke's cottage a plan which the good Luke had proposed to Mrs. Tulliver, thinking it would be very bad if the master were to waken up at the noise of the sale, and the wife and children had sat imprisoned in the silent chamber, watching the large prostrate figure on the bed, and trembling lest the blank face should suddenly show some response to the sounds which fell on their own ears with such obstinate painful repetition. But it was over at last, that time of importunate certainty and eye-straining suspense, the sharp sound of a voice, almost as metallic as the rap that followed it, had ceased. The tramping of footsteps on the gravel had died out. Mrs. Tulliver's blonde face seemed aged ten years by the last thirty hours. The poor woman's mind had been busy divining when her favorite things were being knocked down by the terrible hammer. Her heart had been fluttering at the thought that first one thing and then another had gone to be identified as hers, and the hateful publicity of the Golden Lion— and all the while she had to sit and make no sign of this inward agitation. Such things bring lines and well-rounded faces, and broaden the streaks of white among the hairs that once looked as if they had been dipped in pure sunshine. Already at three o'clock, Kezia, the good-hearted, bad-tempered housemaid, who regarded all people that came to the sale as her personal enemies, the dirt on whose feet was of a peculiarly vile quality, had begun to scrub and swill with an energy much assisted by a continual low muttering against, "'Folks has come to buy up other folks' things,' and made light of scrazing the tops of mahogany tables over which better folks than themselves had had to suffer a waste of tissue through evaporation. She was not scrubbing indiscriminately, for there would be further dirt of the same atrocious kind made by people who had still to fetch away their purchases.' but she was bent on bringing the parlor, where that pipe-smoking pig, the bailiff, had sat, to such an appearance of scant comfort as could be given to it by cleanliness and the few articles of furniture bought in for the family. Her mistress and the young folks should have their tea in it that night, Kezia was determined. It was between five and six o'clock, near the usual tea time, when she came upstairs and said that Master Tom was wanted the person who wanted him was in the kitchen and in the first moments by the imperfect fire and candlelight tom had not even an indefinite sense of any acquaintance with the rather broad-set but active figure perhaps two years older than himself that looked at him with a pair of blue eyes set in a disc of freckles and pulled some curly red locks with a strong intention of respect a low-crowned oilskin covered hat and a certain shiny deposit of dirt on the rest of the costume as of tablets prepared for writing upon suggested a calling that had to do with boats. But this did not help Tom's memory. "'Servant, Master Tom,' said he of the red locks, with a smile which seemed to break through a self-imposed air of melancholy. "'You don't know me again, I doubt,' he went on, as Tom continued to look at him inquiringly. "'But I'd like to talk to you by yourself a bit, please.' "'There's a fire in the parlour, Master Tom,' said Kezia, who objected to leaving the kitchen in the crisis of toasting. Come this way, then, said Tom, wondering if this young fellow belonged to Guest and Company's wharf, for his imagination ran continually toward that particular spot, and Uncle Dean might any time be sending for him to say that there was a situation at Liberty. The bright fire in the parlor was the only light that showed the few chairs, the bureau, the carpetless floor, and the one table. No, not the one table. There was a second table, in a corner, with a large Bible and a few other books upon it. It was this new strange bareness that Tom first felt, before he thought of looking again at the face which was also lit up by the fire, in which stole a half-shy, questioning glance at him as the entirely strange voice said, "'Why, you don't remember Bob, then, as you get in the pocket-knife too, Mr. Tom?' The rough-handled pocket-knife was taken out in the same moment, and the largest blade opened by way of irresistible demonstration. "'What, Bob Jakin?' said Tom, not with any cordial delight for he felt a little ashamed of that early intimacy symbolized by the pocket-knife and was not at all sure that bob's motives for recalling it were entirely admirable ay ay bob jakin if jakin it must be cause there's so many bobs as you went arter the squirrels with that day as i plumped right down from the bow and bruised my shins a good un but i got the squirrel tight for all that and a scratter it was "'And this littlish blade's broke, you see, but I wouldn't have a new one put in, "'cause they might be cheating me and giving me another knife instead, "'for there isn't such a blade in the country. "'It's got used to my hand, like. "'And there was never nobody else gin me nothing but when I got by my own sharpness. "'Only you, Mr. Tom. "'If it wasn't Bill Fox as gin me the terrier pup instead of drownin' it, "'and I had to jaw him a good un afore he'd give it me.'" Bob spoke with a sharp and rather treble volubility, and got through his long speech with surprising despatch, giving the blade of his knife an affectionate rub on his sleeve when he had finished. "'Well, Bob,' said Tom, with a slight air of patronage, the foregoing reminiscences having disposed him to be as friendly as was becoming, though there was no part of his acquaintance with Bob that he remembered better than the cause of their parting quarrel, "'is there anything I can do for you?' "'Why no, Mr. Tom,' answered Bob, shutting up his knife with a click and returning it to his pocket, For he seemed to be feeling for something else. "'I shouldn't ha' come back upon you now you're a trouble, "'and folks say as the master, "'as I used to frighten the birds for, "'and he flogged me a bit for fun "'when he catched me eating the turnip, "'as they say he'll never lift up his head no more. "'I shouldn't ha' come now to ax you to give me another knife "'cause you gin me one afore. "'If a chap gives me one black eye, that's enough for me. "'I shan't ask him for another afore I of him out, "'and a good turn's worth as much as a bad on anyhow.' "'I shall never go downwards again, Mr. Tom, and you were the little chap as I liked the best when I were a little chap, for all you leathered me, and you wouldn't look at me again. There's Dick Brumby, there I could leather him as much as I'd a mind, but, lors, you get tired of leatherin' a chap when you can never make him see what you want him to shy at. I'm seen chaps as'd stand starin' at a bough till their eyes shot out, afore they'd see as a bird's tail warn't a leaf. It's poor work goin' with such raff.' "'But you were always a rare in its shine, Mr. Tom, "'and I could trust in you for dropping down with your stick "'in the nick of time at a runnin' rat or a stoat or that "'when I were a beatin' the bushes.'" Bob had drawn out a dirty canvas bag and would perhaps not have paused just then if Maggie had not entered the room and darted a look of surprise and curiosity at him, whereupon he pulled his red locks again with due respect. But the next moment the sense of the altered room came upon Maggie with a force that overpowered the thought of Bob's presence. Her eyes had immediately glanced from him to the place where the bookcase had hung. There was nothing now but the oblong, unfaded space on the wall, and below it the small table with the Bible and the few other books. "'Oh, Tom,' she burst out, clasping her hands, "'where are the books? I thought my Uncle Glegg said he would buy them. Didn't he? Are those all they've left us?' "'I suppose so,' said Tom, with a sort of desperate indifference. "'Why should they buy many books when they bought so little furniture?' "'Oh, but Tom,' said Maggie, her eyes filling with tears as she rushed up to the table to see what books had been rescued. "'Our dear old Pilgrim's Progress that you colored with your little paints, and that picture of Pilgrim with a mantle on, looking just like a turtle, oh dear!' Maggie went on, half-sobbing as she turned over the few books. "'I thought we should never part with that while we lived. Everything is going away from us. The end of our lives will have nothing in it like the beginning.' Maggie turned away from the table and threw herself into a chair, with the big tears ready to roll down her cheeks, quite blinded to the presence of Bob, who was looking at her with the pursuant gaze of an intelligent, dumb animal, with perceptions more perfect than his comprehension. "'Well, Bob,' said Tom, feeling that the subject of the books was unseasonable, "'I suppose you just came to see me because we're in trouble. That was very good-natured of you.' I'll tell you how it is, Master Tom," said Bob, beginning to untwist his canvas bag. "You see, i have been with the barge this two year. That's how I'm been gettin' my livin'. If it wasn't when I was tentin' the furnace between whiles at Tory's mill, but a fortnight ago I'd a rare bit of luck. I always thought I was a lucky chap, for I never set a trap but what I catched something. But this wasn't trap. It was a fire at Tory's mill, and I doused it. Else it had set the oil alight, and the gentleman gin me ten sovereigns." He give me in himself last week, and he said first, I was a spirited chap, but I knowed that afore, but then he outs with the ten sovereigns and that were summat new. Here they are, all but one. Here Bob emptied the canvas bag on the table, and when I'd got em my head was all of a boil like a kettle of broth thinking what sort of life I should take to, for there were a many trades I'd thought on. For as for the barge, I'm clean tired out with it, for it pulls the days out to there as long as pigs chitterlins. "'and I thought first I'd have ferrets and dogs and be a rat-catcher, "'and then I thought as I should like a bigger way of life, "'as I didn't know so well, "'for I'd seen to the bottom a rat-catching, "'and I thought and thought, till at last I'd settled I'd be a packman, "'for they're no fellers, the packmen are, "'and I'd carry the lightest things I could o' my pack, "'and there'd be a use for a feller's tongue, "'as is no use neither wi' rats nor barges, "'and I should go about the country, far and wide, "'and come round the women with my tongue "'and get my dinner hot at the public.' Lors, it'd be a lovely life. Bob paused, and then said, with defiant decision, as if resolutely turning his back on that paradisaic picture, But I don't mind about it, not a chip, and I changed one of the sovereigns to buy my mother a goose for dinner, and I bought a blue plush waistcoat and a sealskin cap, for if i meant to be a packman I do it respectable, but I don't mind about it, not a chip. "'My yet isn't a turnip, and I shall perhaps have a chance o' dousin' another fire afore long. "'I'm a lucky chap. "'So I'll thank you to take the nine sovereigns, Mr. Tom, "'and set yours and up with em somehow, if it's true, as the master's broke. "'They mayn't go fur enough, but they'll help.' "'Tom was touched keenly enough to forget his pride and suspicion. "'You're a very kind fellow, Bob,' he said, coloring, "'with that little diffident tremor in his voice "'which gave a certain charm even to Tom's pride and severity.' and i shan't forget you again though i didn't know you this evening but i can't take the nine sovereigns i should be taking your little fortune from you and they wouldn't do me much good either wouldn't they mr tom said bob regretfully i don't say so cause you think i want em i aren't a poor chap my mother gets a good penn'orth with pickin feathers and things and if she eats nothin but bread and water it runs to fat and i'm such a lucky chap and i doubt you aren't quite so lucky mr tom the old master isn't anyhow "'And so you might take a slice of my luck and no harm done. "'Lors, I found a leg of pork at the river one day. "'It had tumbled out of one of them round stern Dutchmen. I'll be bound. "'Come, think better on it, Mr. Tom, for old Quentin's sake, "'else I shall think you bear me a grudge.'" Bob pushed the Sovereigns forward, but before Tom could speak, Maggie, clasping her hands and looking penitently at Bob, said, "'Oh, I'm so sorry, Bob. I never thought you were so good. "'Why, I think you're the kindest person in the world.'" Bob had not been aware of the injurious opinion for which Maggie was performing an inward act of penitence, but he smiled with pleasure at this handsome eulogy, especially from a young lass who, as he informed his mother that evening, had such uncommon eyes they looked somehow as they made him feel no-how. "'No, indeed, Bob, I can't take them,' said Tom. "'But don't think I feel your kindness less because I say no. I don't want to take anything from anybody but to work my own way.' "'and those Sovereigns wouldn't help me much. "'They wouldn't, really, if I were to take them. "'Let me shake hands with you instead.' "'Tom put out his pink palm, "'and Bob was not slow to place his hard, grimy hand within it. "'Let me put the Sovereigns in the bag again,' said Maggie, "'and you'll come and see us when you've bought your pack, Bob.' "'It's like as if I'd come out o make-believe "'o purpose to show em you,' said Bob, "'with an air of discontent, as Maggie gave him the bag again. i taken em back in this way.' "'I am a bit of a do, you know. But it isn't that sort of do. It's only when a feller's a big rogue or a big flat. I like to let him in a bit, that's all.' "'Now, don't you be up to any tricks, Bob,' said Tom. "'Else you'll get transported some day.' "'No, no, not me, Mr. Tom,' said Bob, with an air of cheerful confidence. "'There's no law in flea-bites. If I wasn't to take a fool in now and then, he'd never get any wiser. But, Lor's—' "'Have a sovereign to buy you and Miss Summit, only for a token just to match my pocket-knife.' While Bob was speaking, he laid down the sovereign and resolutely twisted up his bag again. Tom pushed back the gold and said, "'No, indeed, Bob. Thank you heartily. But I can't take it.' And Maggie, taking it between her fingers, held it up to Bob and said more persuasively, "'Not now, but perhaps another time. If ever Tom or my father wants help that you can give, we'll let you know, won't we, Tom?' "'That's what you would like, to have us always depend on you as a friend "'that we can go to, isn't it, Bob?' "'Yes, miss, and thank you,' said Bob, reluctantly taking the money. "'That's what I'd like, anything as you like, "'and I wish you good-bye, miss, and good luck, Mr. Tom, "'and thank you for shaking hands with me, though you wouldn't take the money.'" Kezia's entrance, with very black looks, to inquire if she shouldn't ring in the tea now, or whether the toast was to get hardened to a brick, was a seasonable check on Bob's flux of words— And hastened his parting bow. End of book three, chapter six. Recording by Leanne Howlett.